Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Al and Gretchen Beatty have become fan favorites in our Anchored Outdoors membership. Longtime fly tires, instructors, and authors, the duo is a class act who oozes depth, precision, and professionalism into everything they do. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with them to learn more about their personal story, Al's time working for Whiting Farm, hair wing flies, and tips that will help all levels of fly tires. Speaking of fly tying content behind our membership paywall, we've also recently added a 12-part series featuring Skip Morris. His latest book, Top 12 Nymphs for Trout Streams, How, When, and Where to Fish Them, focuses on fly fishing and tying flies. It guides you through 12 great nymph flies and how to catch trout on them in streams, creeks, and rivers. Accompanying a color photograph of each fly, Skip shares about each fly, what it imitates, what it's designed to do, what it does do, and then he tells you how to fish it effectively, when it fishes best, how deep in the water to fish it, and he offers the different fishing methods that can make it catch fish. He describes those methods plainly so that you can go right out and make them work. He even provides a section that helps you select the right fly for specific fishing conditions and choose the best method for presenting that fly to trout. Figuring out trout flies can be overwhelming for the new fly fisher or even confusing enough for the old pro. Let's skip guide you through 12 great nymphs and how, when, and where to fish them at www.skip-morse-fly-tying.com and go to his books. I'll also include the direct purchase link in the write-up to this episode. Usually on the show, I have one person. So it's very simple. We start with where were you born and raised, but obviously 
having both of you on. We've got two incredible stories that have merged into one incredible story. So Al, I'll start with you. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Fort Smith, Arkansas uh, during the Second World War. My father was stationed there. Shortly after I was born, uh, he was shipped to he was shipped overseas, and my mother returned to the family home, a dairy farm in Iowa. The war went on through its. Anyway, the war ended, and Dad uh, joined Mom in Iowa, and bought a dairy farm, and uh, I was raised on a dairy farm until I was sixteen, which means that. Uh, Going fishing was a two-hour ordeal once a month on Sunday after church uh, before we milk cows. Because you milk cows, you get up at 3 o'clock every morning to start milking cows at 3.30. And then you start again that night at 3.30 to milk cows. You start milking at 4 o'clock. And so that's seven days a week. I mean, I that, that was my life. I The idea of time off was absolutely unheard of. I went to work for the phone company after I... After I got away from the dairy farm and all that, and I can't believe it, about the first, second day I was at at the regular job site, the foreman came in with the union steward. He said, I'm sorry, guys, I'm going to have to put you on forced five tens. Everybody's crying the blues about forced five tens, and I'm saying to myself, what am I going to do with all this time off? And so I started volunteering to work everybody's overtime, and I, and I still had more time off than I never had in my whole life. <laughs> But, but that's my background. Uh, a lot of work and not a lot of play. What about fi- your turn. But before we go to Gretchen, just the fishing aspect, did that come in with the farm? And I asked this because I just got back from New Zealand and I noticed that quite a few farms have got wonderful fishing going right through them. Did you have fishing on the farm or did you pick up fishing elsewhere? Uh, the fishing that we got to do was a, a little lake about 10 miles from the farm um, the part of Iowa that we were in was a dryland farm area. The nearest creek was probably, or the nearest creek or river was 15 miles. And we had to drive by this little lake to get to it. And that was the sum total of our fishing is uh, a minnow and a bobber. But when you moved to California, when you were 16. Oh, yeah. Then you fished the yeah. sack. Is that what you fished there? Oh, well, it's, we fished this. I, I got introduced to trout fishing and, and, and fly fishing and streams. And uh, there are some really at, at that time in this in the early '60s, there was some incredible fly fishing in California. Still is. And then when I got out of the army, uh, I went back to my job at the phone company, and and they said, "Would you like to go to Yosemite for a couple of weeks at Yosemite Park?" I said, uh, "Okay." I stayed five years. Oh, you know, and uh, I uh, with a I was a experienced cowboy that's part of one of the things i guess i left left out is that i spent a lot of i wanted to be a cowboy all my life so um i became one after i got away from the dairy farm and and that's another life in agriculture where you work seven days a week so i did you know i went from one seven day a week job to another but anyway so i I was a working cowboy uh got to do all that followed the rodeo circuit the whole bit i rode bulls and bucking horses and um anyway so when i went to yosemite they learned that I could pack mules and ride a horse, and I wasn't there just a short time. And they said, "Boy, there's a bad lightning storm in the back country. Would you grab a a couple of mules and a horse and get up there and fix it?" And God, I had to ride by Merced River. Oh my God, this was this was awful. So um, uh, 
I worked hard during the day and I fished until I couldn't see anymore at night. Had a great time. And what was it about the fishing that really got you at that stage in your life? Because it sounds like you were a very active, maybe, were you a bit of, were you a bit of an adventure chaser? Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that a bit. Yeah. You, so you, what about you fishing? The rock band. Oh, I, yeah, I, I played in the rock <laughs> band too a little bit. I spent 10 years to get there. I still got that. I got a back in the 61, I bought a used Les Paul Gibson guitar. A 1959 model, and I played it for the better part of 20 years, off and on in different bands and stuff. Uh, and uh, anyway, I uh, set that thing aside a few years ago, and I haven't played it much since. And the other day, I I looked online to see what it would be worth because I thought, well, maybe I ought to get rid of the old thing. It's been around a long time. That doggone guitar, if it's in good shape, is worth thirty thousand dollars. I'm just done. I mean, well, you never know. But anyway, I don't know how I got out. You keep getting me off the subject here. I was back in Yosemite fishing, I thought we were talking about, and we ended up with rock bands and guitars. But anyhow. Why did you love fishing, though? What was it about it? It was the unexpected. The the thing that I really liked about it when I got started was the unexpected tug, because when I, when I started, it was... Uh, well, all sunken flies in that in that Iowa lake, you know, streamers and stuff like that. And it was a boom, all of a sudden you had a tug. Right. But I discovered dry fly fishing in, in the Merced River in Yosemite Park. Oh, my God, was I hooked. Oh, yeah, I was a dry fly, fly addict for a long time. And now I kind of do everything. I I don't really care. But well, for about 10 years there, uh, well, of the five years that I was in Yosemite, I don't think I ever had a wet fly on. Except a dry fly that got wet because it was pulled under. Okay. Gretchen, what about you? Where were you born and raised? Uh, well, I was born in Plymouth Falls, Oregon, uh, because of, I was a war baby also. My dad was there on uh, war construction. But my family is from the Boise Valley. And so as soon as the war was over, we moved back to Boise. And that's where I was raised. So, uh, And I did my fishing um all around in Boise, the Boise River and up in the high mountain lakes and streams in Idaho. And you you and I spent I spent um oh a year and a half in at the Teton National Park uh where they when they were building the lodge, my father did all the plumbing and heating on the lodge. So I also had the fishing experience there in Wyoming, which was incredible. So you grew up doing it? Yes, yeah. Uh, my dad never let me have a, a fly rod, though. If we were fly fishing, I got a willow with a leader and a tippet and a fly. And um, so I never learned how to cast. Her dad was a commercial tire that tied on a treadle sewing machine. Tell him about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah Dad, there's a, there's a company in Boise, or was a company in Boise, that had uh, women tying, and they were all women tying on treadle sewing machines. And so dad thought that was kind of cool. So he went and <clears throat> checked it out. And so he built himself a treadle sewing machine and then he built several more. So when the ladies that worked for this company didn't want to go to work anymore, they wanted to tie at home, he would furnish them uh, the, the machine and they would tie for him. 
And uh, so I started out very young, sitting by him and sorting materials. That was my job. Wow. What? Um, about six years old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And how surreal to be sitting here with you now in your fly tying room. We're still doing the same thing. Talk to me about the sewing machine. When I got married, of course, and had kids, I kind of put it aside. There was just no way. I worked full time as a human resource manager and had kids and all that. So I didn't tie for a long time. And then the kids were gone and I tied a few flies. And so Al and I worked together. So we were having a staff meeting at my house one day. So I said, let me show you my flies. So I showed him my flies and he kind of raised his eyebrow like, "Uh, I don't know about these. (laughs) So he gave me his video on beginning fly tying and loaned me advice and and all these tools. And I never used all these tools. That That was a whole different thing. And then I learned how to tie on a stationary vice which was a whole different process we got married and immediately moved to montana and and started our our second career which has been 30 years of in the fly tying industry or fly fishing industry and i've got a million questions on that but i i'm hung up on the sewing machine what would you like to see one <laughs> yes please if you don't mind I think we can work it out here. Just a minute, Joe. You chat with her while I get things set up. Yeah, tell me what you mean. So you actually used the sewing machine to tie flies, not just yeah, using it as a base. Yeah, what you do is you set it up so that instead, you know, on a, a treadle machine, the, the needle goes like this, but you fix it so that it's it now rotates. Oh. And uh, Dad was a plumber, so all the stuff was plumbing stuff. So he's got this thing that you put the and tighten it down and so you've got the hook and you use your feet to make it go around oh wow so they definitely and all need you it. use for tools is just a pair of tweezers and scissors are you ready but the sewing machine is um actually replaced by a vice now i'm gonna what I, she's gonna have to talk to you because i won't have audio and i'll take you in into the other room if you'll go to if you'll go to the wide camera, Gretchen, I think it's F7 or F9, or there it is. Oh, oh okay. All right. What we'll this do is, is we will... For everyone listening right now, I have started putting the show on YouTube. So if you'd like a visual of this, just hop on over to uh, my channel there on okay, YouTube. You can tell them where we're headed. Yeah, we're well, just going out of the tying room into the family room. And at the bottom of the stairs, we have my old machine. It's not my dad's machine, but it. It's the one I used. And as you can see, it's been converted. And you can see where the you put the hook and it goes around and around when you rotate it with your feet. Oh, he also oh. has some other else focus on the other mach- other uh things too. The other vices, we have some other rotary vices that people invented i am uh, so embarrassed to tell you gretchen that i was actually looking at the white thing behind it thinking that was i'm so used to the sewing machine that i have where you you sit it down and you plug it in and you use the foot pump yeah well the (laughs) white thing behind was it was another invention that somebody made for rotary tying uh so because when we did the rotary tying book we kind of did a lot of research on it 
and unfortunately, we have a video had a video of my dad tying on the machine, and it got misplaced. Well, it we gave his rotary vice to the federation along with the video, and they've kind of misplaced it. So, oh, and now no. we can't find our copy of the video. So that would be really fun to have because he was amazing. He tied on snailed hooks. So as the, the hook went around, the snail would be out there just bouncing around and he would just tie around it. It was fun to watch. Wow. That's really, I've never seen an old sewing machine before. It kind of looks like a spindle for people who can't see. It, it kind of looks like Sleeping Beauty, you know, where, <laughs> is that, is that a fair? <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> I am not trying to age you. <laughs> you have never seen a, a treadle sewing machine? No. Oh my gosh, my grandmother tried on, or sewed on one, and yeah. I. Yeah, we've got and, a real one upstairs that actually sews cloth instead of makes flies. But <laughs> how cool! Now you two meeting. How did the, I didn't? I think I had heard when you were tying for us on one of our members' tying nights that you guys had met um, during work. But I cannot remember the story. Would you mind sharing how the two of you met? <clears throat> well, I was a human resource manager for General Telephone. Uh, out in the district. And um, I got a call from the district manager in Sandpoint, Idaho, that said, I just hired a guy from California. Now, they weren't supposed to do that. I was supposed to be involved, and I, but, but they needed people. And so I said, okay, I'll, I knew that Everett, our headquarters, was going to be all up in arms about it, but we put it all together, and that was Al. And so um, I was in Coeur d'Alene as a resource person, and he was working in Sandpoint, which was part of my district. And I was a, I was a technician for, well, I was a new hire from another company. So I was a technician for six months, and then they promoted me to supervisor, and that's how I met her as she was on a supervisory gig, and we met at a meeting. And Oh, yeah, I was a, it was a. My boss wanted me to learn the business, not just be a human resource manager that didn't know anything. So I spent a month in Sandpoint supervising a central office Ooh. and learning that technical part. And he was working as an INR supervisor. And so, and we had a switch that was going bonkers on us. So we had to kind of work together to get that because it, they had put a whole bunch of rehab switches in it, and it wasn't working right. So we had to work together. We're getting, we're getting into the technical area, anyway, probably going yeah. every everybody's head except somebody that's got telephone experience. So. <laughs> but started working together, and then we were in the going forward. We were on several task forces and stuff together. And soon we found out that she was telling me about this rotary machine. I said, "Oh wow! The last time I saw one of those is in." West Yellowstone, and I don't know if you ever heard of them or not, but old timers in the West Yellowstone scene were a husband and wife called Pat and Sig Barnes, and they had one of the fly shops there in West Yellowstone, and she tied almost all of their flies on one of those rotary treadle machines. Right. And anyway, so I said, oh, really? Yeah, she says, yeah, my dad was a commercial tire on them. I used to sort his materials, and I said, oh, wow, you're good looking, too. Holy <laughs> crap. I got to get to know you better. <laughs> Because you both were fly fishers at the time. So then how did that conversation unfold? You said, I fly fish, you fly fish. What are you doing on Saturday? Uh, well, not quite. We were, we, 
We had a little grin off your face. We had a little tangle called another spouse. And we had to, you know, that had to be worked out. Well, yeah. I, you know, I had kids. He was my friend. He was just my friend. Got it. <laughs> right. Enough said. Okay, shall we Until go to another Until he wasn't, subject? right. <laughs> yeah, Until yeah. Until he wasn't, yeah. So he then, says he chased me for 10 years. I don't know if that's true or not. But. <laughs> the fly fishing industry, how does that all enter the mix? Did it happen before you were a couple? Yeah, it, kind of. Um, yeah. See, and, and when I was still working for the phone company, I discovered that... Um, well, I was making a, a lot of money in a higher management level, and I wanted to have some kind of a hobby where I could fly fish and lose money. So it kind of helped balance out the taxes. So I started. Oh, you're being serious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so in 82, 10 years, 11 years before I retired, I started this fly fishing stuff. And I had been a commercial tire since I was 14. I never missed a year tying flies commercially. So I'd always done that. So I decided to turn it into a living and file the taxes and all the kind of stuff that you have to do. And that's how we started the company with the, um, the company ID uh, ID number that we have today actually was in 82. But then when we got married in 93, we resigned from our jobs in the phone company and we moved to Bozeman, Montana to tie flies and guide. That was it. Oh my God. That's a big move. Uh, oh, my, we, my parents thought I'd, I'm crazy. Oh boy. Was, but we and we uh, interesting part was we couldn't move into a house for like two months, wasn't yeah, it? Took it took two months to close the deal in our house. So we lived in the back of our little pickup and we called ourselves stream people. And we just fished we, and yeah. it was amazing. We'd drive into oh. town and say, Well, there's a fly shop over there. We'd pop in and of course every it got to be known all over Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming that the the new beaties were running all over the place. And whenever we'd stop, they'd say, hey, I need a couple of dozen this or that. We'd buy another tank of gas and off we'd go. You know, tie a couple dozen flies, fill the truck up and go on to the next river. I mean, we're not talking a camper on the back of the truck. We, it was a camper shell, a shell. Yeah. And yeah. and we had, we kind of made a little place to live there. We We belonged to an athletic club so we could shower. And we had a storage unit for the things we would need, like like our float tubes and yeah. <laughs> the important stuff. Yeah, important stuff. But 30 years ago, so you were in your, were you, how old? I'm too afraid to take a guess. You'd be young. I'm, I'm, I was 80 my last birthday, so oh. I was 50 then. Oh, I was going to say you were in your early 40s. God, I love you, young lady. <laughs> no, no, no. Long way. No, I'm, I was 80 in January. Okay, so 50. That's a big move for 50. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, we'd already had a, a, a full life in corporate America, you know, had the retirement. One of the things I used to tell the guys that I worked with, they talk about opening up their own fly shop and all this stuff, all the dreams they had. And they were young fellows. And I said, let me give you a piece of advice. Go out and get a job, get yourself a 401k plan, and then go into fly fishing because you're going to go broke otherwise. You're going to go broke anyway, but at least you've got the retirement to back you up. And that was always my advice to the young people. And most of them didn't take the advice. So when we got to Bozeman, though, uh, we uh, and got into our house, we finally got into the house like in 
August, I yeah. think it was, just before the the uh, Federation's show. But we went to the local fly shop to the River's Edge and talked to the, the guy owner there, and Dave Corcoran, and said, we'd like to tie for you. And so he he listed some flies that he was interested in that we could tie, and we did samples for him. We still have a book of the samples we tied for him. And so then he would give us an – he was a great guy to work with. He would give us an order in the fall. Yeah, several thousand dozen flies, and then with staggered delivery dates. Staggered delivery dates, so we could tie all winter. But did you ever get and, exhausted? Of, I mean, commercial fly tying is an enormous – a job. I mean, it's exhausting. I don't know anyone who's actually stuck with it for longer than 10 years or so. Um, that's that's how we you see this side by side. Mm -hmm. One of our popular things on YouTube is for me to tie the first half of the fly and Gretchen, you can go over there and Gretchen to tie the other half of the fly and we'll pass it back and forth because I got to tell you there was more than just a few winters where we never tied a complete fly the whole winter long. I'd tie the first half of the humpy, and she'd do the rest of it. That's actually very clever. Had you always planned on going into this as a joint effort? Because you, you're officially, you're branded together as one, right? Yeah. No, I, I, in fact, I was a little hesitant because I hadn't been tying this way for more than a year or so. The, my first order, order. we were still working for General Telephone. I was on temporary assignment in Everett, living in an apartment. And he talked me into doing a commercial order. And <clears throat> I didn't really know what I was doing, but I managed to do it. Yeah. That was my first commercial order. That yeah, was for Bill Martz. I don't know if you ever ran across him, but Bill Martz had a fly shop in Wenatchee, Washington at the time. And after that, he went to work for Sage, and he was a... A sage rep and technical guy. He was one heck of a caster. Yeah. And uh, then he ended up with a fly shop in uh, Redding, California. Anyway, that that was my first commercial order. Uh, so then when we went to Bozeman, I'm like, well, I'm not that good a tire, Al. How am I going to do this? Then just to go, let's go the next step. So then he decides we're going to make movies, right? Yeah. So we get this commercial VHS camera and we start producing these movies. And with Al at that time, there was no editing. If you made a mistake, it stayed on screen and you had to correct it. And I was really nervous. I mean, I, I still hadn't been tying that long, but uh, I mean, he just brought me along real fast. When she says not tying that long, you can tie um, 50 flies a year for 20 years, or you can tie 10,000 flies in six months. You, you pick that, pick did, it, yeah. but you pick up a lot of experience in a real short order. And <laughs> yes. she, she was a fast learner. And like I said, there are a lot of winners go by and I tie the first half of the humpy and she'd tie the second half, which was the hackle. She can put a hackle on better than I can today. I mean, she is just it's, good. And it wasn't always smooth <clears throat> because, um, well, I had to tie a fly that had uh, ostrich hurls on it. Oh. And I could not get that ostrich hurl to work right. So oh, we're sitting there for a day, me saying bad things, and I would 
tie it on, take it off, tie it on, just practice, practice, practice. And he just sat there and kept his mouth shut. Well, I didn't stay the heck out of the way. (laughs) He's a smart guy. Finally, finally it was like, aha, I got the move. And so that stayed with me forever. You know, you just, sometimes you just have to take a piece of material and work with it till you conquer it. And that was ostrich hurl for me. What was the plan with the videos? They, I'm assuming they were self-produced VHS tapes. Yeah, they were. And, and we did, um, over the years, we did 30 of them. And we we sold them. Uh, we had a store over a website. And th- that was back in the 90s when that was a pretty, um, it was a lot different than it is today where you have PayPal and all that stuff. We Talk, actually talked to people on the phone and sold them stuff and and anyway and any, as it as it and turned out shows. we did shows and we met uh Marty Malzon at one of the shows and he was the buyer for um Cabela's and anyway bottom line is we ended up one of our big customers was Cabela's for the videos as well as some other stuff well, that's a big customer so how oh, many videos uh, in a year do you think that you would sell um I don't know, a couple hundred. It was it was never uh, a lot, but you well, know. Well, when we did, we did all of Gary Lafontaine. You know who Gary Lafontaine is. Mm-hmm. We did all of his flies for him on video. Oh wow! And those were big. So there's that's seven that videos. Was, that was seven videos, like fifty flies or something like that. Yeah. We one of the things he, at the time, Gary. We started with Gary. He was had ALS and was in the declining stages, he could still get around a little bit, but when we started and as the years unfolded, uh, the disease really debilitated him. And, and anyway, we ended up doing all those videos for him, uh, no charge for his company because his health insurance ran out a long time ago before, before the disease finally got him. So we were just one of many people that were doing all kinds of things for him and his company. Um, and that's that's what we did for them. Of course, we made up for it by selling to Cabela's. But back to you asked the question: of How many did we sell a year? A couple of hundred. I know you you're in the fly fishing industry, and you know that you take a whole bunch of stuff and you throw it at the wall, and what sticks you keep doing, and what falls away. No matter how much you love it, you let it go. I mean, yes. because it's still at the, at the end of the day, it's food on the table, you know. But now there's a there's another part too. We were in Bozeman doing our thing. And this guy came visiting us, Jerry, from um, Whiting Farms. And he came and started talking to us. And he wanted to see, first of all, if we really did, were really selling things. And so I took him downstairs and showed him all of our stuff and everything. Well, then as it turns out, they wanted to interview Al to work for Whiting Farm. So that's when we moved to Colorado. Oh, yeah, and we okay. spent a couple of years as Whiting Farms. Um, we spent a couple of years with Whiting Farms. I was the actual guy working for Whiting, but uh, we both did. And can it ask, was. Um, can I ask like, you some questions about that? Incredible experience. Huh? I've got questions about Whiting Farm or, oh, or about yeah. Whiting. So, um, what was your job exactly there? I was a marketing director. Um, Quite frankly, they they, they said uh, we're going to make you, we're going to call you marketing director. You're going to run the. We have a dividing line at this door right here. Everything outside is live, and once it comes inside, it's dead. 
meaning we it's been harvested and now it's time to get the feathers. You're responsible from this dividing line from from uh, that point to the customer's wall. And I'll just give you one example of the ph phenomenal things that Tom Whiting can do with birds. The day I went to work for him, he said, uh, "I want your your main job is to increase sales." I said, "Well, okay. What I'll do is I'll uh, I'll call the top fifty customers we have and see what they like, and then." I'll get the a few of the bottom ones and see what they don't like and go from there. Anyway, bottom line at the at the time they were having having trouble with the birds stepping on the feathers and tearing the tips of the saddles off. And so they would rather than sending out a real scraggly tore up tip, they'd cut it off with a pair of scissors. And boy, that didn't go over good with the fly shops at all. And so I, I went into the um, conference room at lunchtime. We always ate lunch in the conference room and, and told him what the results of my study was. And I said, uh, we really got to do something about these extra long saddle feathers. You can't send them out cut off because it is really a pain for the retailers uh, because the customers don't like it. He said, huh, I'll tell you what, I'll grow the legs longer on the birds so they don't drag the feathers anymore. He did it. So how he does this work then? Are the birds used for meat? How are they farmed? Where are they farmed? A million questions about birds. I'll answer the questions that I can, and then some is a. Uh, we're still under a non-disclosure contract, but um, the birds are raised in individual cages. Um, that's uh, so because the 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 birds themselves uh, are from Henry Hoffman's stock, and uh, they were originally fighting birds. So they're, they're all roosters, right? They're not chickens; they're roosters. Well, they're, they're they're roosters for the the dry fly feathers, but there's a lot of use for the hen feathers, and we harvested a lot of those too. And one of the things that I, one of the things that I did as the marketing director was take them from throwing all those feathers away to actually marketing those feathers, Smart. because because there was a need out there. As an example, good source for wing material was really difficult to find, and they had it right there in the stuff that they were throwing away. <clears throat> but so do they get eaten uh, after do they get eaten after or are they simply oh, bred the, for their feathers the 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 uh, the birds that grow the feathers there's almost no flesh on them at all because because of the the breeding process their whole all their energy goes into producing feathers oh. so basically you end up with a carcass that um has very little food value so what what Tom did, and what a lot of people don't know, is that Whiting Farms is actually four farms or four ranches. And one of the ranches was an old cattle ranch, and it had a lot of hay fields on it, uh, irrigated hay fields. So anyway, they uh, composted the, the bodies <clears throat> and spread that compost over the hay fields. And Whiting Farms also sells the absolute best organic hay in Colorado. Also the manure, too, that, yeah. that it was yeah. all composted together. And yeah. it, talk about good stuff. Ooh. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's, my garden, it was amazing. It would be. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So then a bird, though, like that, how long would it take to grow a bird to have hackles that long? Um, if you're allowed to answer. Of a year. Three quarters of a year, give or take. Wow. So that's why they're so expensive. Well, there's that. Um, it, the The economics of feather birds is compared to friars, you know, and and 
that part of Colorado had a lot of bird um, ranches, if you will. But most of them were most of them were for the fryer industry that goes to the grocery stores for people to have for their for their evening dinners. And the economics of a fryer bird is to retail at that time for three bucks. Well, you can you can work the numbers from there, working back as to what they have to produce that bird for, and the the dollars and that back to the company in profit. Well, at that time, our birds would take us three times as long to raise them. Okay, you can set that number aside. Uh, three times uh, the length of time to produce, but we were selling the feathers out of them for $150 retail. And I understand that this was in 2001, two and in that, in that time frame. And um, so by comparison, there were some major dollars uh, with with those birds. But but also there's there's a lot more processing that goes oh, totally. with it. Um, I mean, it, you don't just, I mean, it, it was quite a process to get those looking like you wanted them to put them in the bags. And also some of them you died and there was just a whole bunch of stuff. And through that process, it was all these feathers laying around that came out of the pelts for a fly tire. I would go around and pick feathers off of the floor and Tom would say, you don't have to do that. And I thought, but look, it's a beautiful feather. <laughs> amazing i i gotta tell you that tom learned real quick he said well you can take the your wages and and feathers if you want (laughs) i didn't want to talk no 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 (laughs) the phone would ring dear would you like to go to lunch and that was code she wanted to come back from lunch and go through the feather bins i wouldn't get paid for the next couple three weeks because she took feathers home uh anyway the best of the best (laughs) but i do like feathers. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but the, the real part of that story is we were going to a lot of fly fishing shows, like 12 a year. And he would do Whiting's booth and I would do our booth. And I would take those prime feathers and up the price and they would sell like hotcakes. Right. I mean, this, this is before the whole hair phenomena when everyone was buying them for the oh, hair. Yeah, we got it on that too, but oh, uh, yeah. the hair phenomena. <laughs> Oh, did we make out? <laughs> I bet you did. What it makes was, it was um um what are the what were those feathers that I bought that I sold for hair? But you mean the uh, the Hebert feathers? No, Hebert. Yeah. yeah, we bought a bunch of the after Whiting bought Hebert. The uh, the first few batches weren't good for tying. But they were these great, big, long, beautiful feathers, and the color was spectacular. And Tom didn't really know what to do with them. I saw buy them, so I bought them for like a couple bucks a pelt, you know. A pound. She bought them by the pound. I mean, I just and I had all these feathers, and Al's like, "What are you going to do with them?" I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and it's like twenty years later, or something like that. <laughs> This phenomenon comes on, and I would take those and put them on a cardboard tin and put them on YouTube, or I mean on eBay, and they would. Oh, that's amazing. Month, I, I made so much money in a month, I couldn't believe it. And then it <laughs> stopped. Boom. But it was so much fun. 
Yeah, uh, I was wondering about how you guys did on, in that time um, with well, the whole fashion thing. But what about the feathers? Sorry, go ahead, Gretchen. No, I was just saying, I don't feel guilty about selling those feathers because they weren't good for tying. Absolutely. What about the feathers the, um, the feathers that we do use for fly tying, the ones that are that are deemed quality feathers? What is it about them that makes them so great? And I'll give you just some context here. I'm thinking about all the poor people who go into a fly shop and they don't know really what the difference is between premium and not premium. They don't necessarily take the cape out of the packaging and they just buy it. What should people listening right now be looking for when they go into the fly shop? Um, I'm biased, of course. If the name Whiting is on the package, uh, it will be a quality product inside. The only thing you have to look for is, um, is it the color you want? And, I'd, and, I, and I'll tell you, I have been through the process from one end to the other. And I can tell you right now, Tom hasn't changed one bit since I worked for him 20 years ago. Absolutely refuses to have a feather go out the door that isn't perfect for fly tying. That's and great. Um, now, and I uh, can, only re- can only refer to how Tom dealt with things. Uh, uh, I don't know how other feather manufacturers work, but if you buy whiting farms, and I'm not affiliated with them in any way, shape, or form, but if you buy a whiting product, it's good, period. So but also, if, if if you are just a, a, a um, now and then tire, I don't know how else to say that, <clears throat> a half a saddle or a quarter cape or a 100 pack, from Whiting Farms, those are great buys for people that don't tie a whole bunch of flies. Those are all products that I developed when I was a marketing director because at the time, like I told you, it was $150 revenue to the company for a bird if we sold the cape and the saddle and maybe a few other feathers. But the cape and the saddle would bring $150 retail to the company, which you can work the numbers back to see what the margins would have been for the fly shop owners and so forth. Well, I said, Jesus, Tom. So if they buy one of your saddles or one of these capes, they got enough feathers for all of their fly fishing and for all the future generations. I said, we make one sale and we're done. I said, what we need to do is, and then we started coming up with the quarter saddles um, and size feathers, the Whiting 100s, which is a enough feathers in a package for 100 flies at 10 bucks instead of 100 bucks for then you have a chance to make another sale. Well, what we ended up doing with some more uh, cost to us for the added value, we upped the revenue from from 150 to 300 dollars a bird by doing the value added. You know, so it was good for us, good for the customers, and we could get customers coming back because uh, otherwise you wouldn't. I mean, they just have all the feathers they could use forever. It was tricky to find somebody to size those feathers for the 100 packs. That was, we, went, we went all over. And, and what we ended up doing is one of our major customers was a fly factory in Malaysia. And they had their corporate headquarters in Singapore. The main factory was in Malaysia. And anyway, bottom line is they were in the business of sizing hackle for, for flies. And so we ended up contracting with them to size the Whiting 100s so that you get a package of 14s, it would be enough feathers for size 14 to tie 100 flies for 10 okay. bucks. So what are you looking for there? You're not looking, you want it to not be fluffy. 
or to have too much, I guess, down <clears throat> style of feather at the at the base. What other characteristics in an individual feather are you looking for? Supple stem, um, no fuzz, no web. That's what that's what you want. That's what you look for in the feather. And the web, one of the things that I consider as a commercial tire, not as a whiting farm employee, but I consider if a feather has more than one third web for the length of the fiber, then it's it's not good quality dry fly. You know, that, that's a personal thing. And that's what, what we have in some of our books. With whiting, if there's any web, it's no good. But I know as a commercial tire and a guy that spent a heck of a lot of time on the water, it can have one third and it doesn't hurt anything. Right. How many flies can you get out of a single feather? One of those real long ones. The uh, the really long ones, we can get a dozen flies. Oh, really? If you tie an elk hair caddis where you're doing a palmer tackle rather than a densely wrapped tackle, you can do a dozen and a half. I guess you guys would have this down to a, a science at this point. Almost down to the number of and turns. We yeah. tied almost <laughs> exclusively with the, the long saddles we were commercially tying. Yeah. Because it just time wise, uh it just made sense. Yeah. We started out, we had a big huge barrel of fly feathers left over from my dad. <clears throat> and so I said, you know, why don't we just use those? It'll take three or four feathers well, for a fly. Sometimes five. You know, to hackle a fly. That's the kind of quality they had then. Back in the forties, that's when when he got these feathers. So, uh, so. that didn't last very long. <laughs> so, speaking of yeah, lasting very a, long, you lasted two years at Whiting in Colorado. Yeah, and then we returned to Boise to care for Gretchen's parents. Her age, her parents were aging and having a tough time, and so we returned to take care of the parents. Okay. With a thought that we would probably maybe go back to Montana, but that uh, well, and that responsibility took longer than we thought, and and by the time that reached its sunset, we just looked at each other and said, you know what, let's just take a few trips in the summer to Montana to go fishing, and let's stay here in Boise. It is still the best place to go fishing, because <laughs> that's where you're still in Boise today. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay. And then what happens in your career together? What about books? Oh, boy. <laughs> books. I, I, I'll tell you this story about, I wanted to be an outdoor writer so bad. And it was before, I, when I was in college, I told uh, my, I'll listen to this carefully. I told my English professor that I wanted to be an outdoor writer. He just laughed and laughed and laughed. He said, kid, forget it. You write like a sixth grader. Forget it. I was crushed. Okay, well, there's other things I could do. So anyway, I went on and did other things. So let's fast forward now. I decided to try writing oh, in the early 80s. And I managed to get a whole bunch of rejection letters and a stack of articles like you wouldn't believe, none of which got published. And I was lamenting to Lefty Cray and Gary LaFontaine one day at a fly fishing show. I just can't get the darn things published. Lefty says, I can tell you right now, kid, what's wrong with your writing. And I haven't even looked at it. You write like a college professor. You got to write at the sixth grade level. Do a good job of it right to the sixth grade level. Gary said, no, no, no. Eighth grade level. He says, but but do a, do a good job of it. 
Yeah, Lefty says, remember, your audience in the outdoor world of writing is 8 to 88. The college professor lives on one side of the street, and the kid across the street, one's 12 years old, the other one's 42 years old. The college professor doesn't care if he learns how to wrap hackle in a fly fishing magazine uh, with sixth grade language. He just wants to learn how to do it. The kid won't know what the heck you're talking about if you start using college level language. That's an interesting so, take. But that's uh, but that's uh, the advice I have for anybody. Of, and then we have a whole long list of rules that, of our own that we never have more than three commas in a in a paragraph and ta da 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 because you're getting too wordy. If in fact, if you haven't figured it out by now, I can chatter on for a bit. Well, I can do the same thing at the keyboard. Well, <laughs> she gets rid of all my chatter from the keyboard. The way, takes away those. The way we do it is we kind of come up with the ideas together. We brainstorm. Yeah. And then he pretty much we kind of verbally outline what we want to do, and then he writes it, and then. If like if he's describing how to tie a fly, I read it without looking at the steps. And if I can't visually picture it, then we have to go back to the drawing board. I want to be able to see it in my mind. And that's kind of the way we we work. Uh yeah. team, teamwork. <clears throat> how many books have and you written now? Um <laughs> Well, with rewrites, you know, when I say rewrites, there's a there's a couple that we've republished a second time, you know, and added to and all that kind of stuff. And quite frankly, believe me, a rewrite takes a lot more work than just doing a new one. I'll tell you right off the top. 20 books, and we are have done um chapters in other people's books, uh, and five others. So whatever you want to call. We don't write for publishers anymore. We we do all of our stuff with Amazon. You make no money doing that. You're nodding your head like you know. I've heard I've I've heard a thing or two from well, various friends in the bottom, industry. Bottom line, the average contract with a brick and mortar publisher, nothing against any of them. Please understand this, but it will be uh, you'll get ten percent of the uh, retail cover price of the book with takeouts. Keyword was takeouts, the parts they take out for, oh, we, we just sent 50 books over here for uh, advertising uh, over there. Bottom line is you better get your money up front in the form of a, of an advance because nothing, you don't say that 10% ever. And we did get an advance on the La Fontaine <clears throat> book. So we made some money on it, yeah. <laughs> but that was it. But then we went to work at, through Amazon and, um, well, those checks show up every month. All right. And we so, have, in fact, we we wrote a book on how to do, how to publish on Amazon, and um, so we'll, a plug is out there. Go to Amazon, and uh, you'll the you'll find it there in in our 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 uh, our, our book page. On there's one on how to write an ebook, and another one on how to write uh, print books. And it's different. Yeah, it's very very different from one to the other how you do it. So the, we've got some that are ebooks and print books. So we had to do it in two different formats. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What do you think that the two of you are best known for in the fly fishing industry as far as being technical tires? Hair wing dry fly, I think we're best known for. Yep. Humpies, wolves, stimulators, trudes. Yeah, comparadons. I mean, comparadons. anything tied with hair, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole process. And we, I think we covered it some in one of the other things that we did for for your organization but just in tying a good hair wing fly you got to have the right material to start with and that means the right hair i did do some weaving when we were when we were uh tying commercially i i wove a, a stone fly but i haven't done much of that no. since in fact, so. one of our books is the art of the weave is one of the one of the other things that i learned as a working cowboy is i learned to braid rawhide for horse equipment Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow or another, that found its way onto fish hooks, and it works really good on fish hooks too. <laughs> Braiding on fish hooks. Now weaving, um, we could probably go down a whole rabbit hole of weaving. I've done it in a few of my flies, and it does take quite a bit longer than just regular wrapping. Is it worth it? Can the fish tell? <clears throat> probably for the most part, no. Probably if it's, <laughs> if you're fishing a, a fairly fast stream, it doesn't make one doggone bit of difference. The fish has such a short time to decide. Now, when you're fishing spring creeks, I'm not going to say weaving makes a difference or or braiding or anything, but the fly, the fish get a lot longer chance to study the fly. Also, I think with stone flies, I think I did a, a George Anderson stone fly, and I think for a stone fly, you can get the the shape of the body closer to ride and the, and the look of it, I think for a stone fly and you can get pretty fast at it after a while, but that fly took a lot of time. And every year I would tell Dave, I'm not tying that. And he would up the price he'd pay for it. Finally, I said, I don't care what you pay me. I'm not going to tie it because <laughs> it did take a lot of time. Got it. Now, just going back to some of the videos that you have made for Anchored Outdoors. You have blown my mind on everything that you have done. I think I had you for, did we do two fly tying nights? Yeah, we did two fly tying nights. We did the whole series on dubbing brushes and and different ways to utilize dubbing. You blow my mind consistently. It's a bit of a disservice doing this in a podcast because we can't showcase a lot of these techniques. Um, And that's not a shameless plug to go to my website because people can also go to your YouTube channel and see a lot of these techniques. But yeah. can can we talk through some of the major aha moments that your viewers get? Because you both just have are you riddled with tricks and tips. What are some of the biggest aha moments that you've seen in your presentations? Jesus, there's many. There was one here recently. What was it? it? Was so simple. Oh, broke a thread, and all we did is just pull the thread down. And, and pulled the two together and just kept right on wrapping and and the, the people that's right they were like wow <laughs> wow that was worth the admission right there we didn't even talk about it we just did it you know it's, you um, know? 
Uh, you know, that is a really hard one. And um, oh, that we've had a lot of ahas on on which way to twist dubbing. Oh, God, yes. That's an important one. In fact, we did a whole book on it. Twisting dubbing. You um, you determine the direction. You twist the dubbing based on whether you're a right or left handed tire. OK, and you look you look down the thread from the hook. And then you twist in either a, okay, as a right-handed tire, you twist twist in a clockwise direction Always. when looking down on the thread. And if you're a fly tire, then twist your dubbing and you wrap, 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 oop, twist, 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 wrap, 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 twist. If you keep twisting to keep it tight because it keeps coming loose as you wrap it, you're, you're twisting it the wrong way. So as you wrap, you're untwisting it. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, that was a big one. That's that's also and, the one. Of course, it's the opposite direction. Now, if you're left-handed, you're going to be going counterclockwise. Uh, that you twist your dubbing. But the other thing is the uh, Wonder Wing. Wonder Wing, yeah, that that's one that that's one that people. And I think we did a Wonder Wing you gig did. for you. Didn't we? Yes, can we yeah, talk okay. about that? Is it possible to do this with audio? I'd love to hear you walk us through the Wonder Wing a little bit and why it's so unique. Um. First off, a Wonder Wing, as it was originally done, it is um, two feathers placed curved sides away from each other. And then the fibers at the base ends are stroked back and tied to form a wing, tied to the to the hook shank to form a wing. And that's the stems, the fibers. You stand them all up. You got a beautiful wing stem going all the way to the hook. And there's only one problem with that particular design, and that stem is stiff, and it will cause a light tippet to twist like you can't believe. It makes a terrible mess. So what we had to do is, once we learned how to do the wing, is we had to figure out how to make a looped wonder wing so that the stem wasn't tied down to the, to the hook shank. So, again, we have two feathers curve opposing away from each other. We stroke the fibers back, and we tie it on really short stem fibers and all with three snug but not tight wraps, and then slowly pull the fibers out from underneath those snug but not tight wraps until it's out to the length that you want. Well, what that ends up doing is pulling the stems out, and you end up with a looped, swept-back wonder wing. So the fibers are swept back, but no stem tied down. So they're very flexible and don't cause the fly to twist your leader. Ah, oh, that's the function. It's all coming back to me now. Speaking of proportions <clears throat> and and materials, what else will cause a fly to either flip or not sit right or spin and, and twist your leader? Um, but it's funny. We're working on, 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 on another book right now, which is all upside down flies. And there is a real balancing act in all flies, but especially upside down flies, in the relationship between the hook point sticking up instead of down. And, of course, that's out of balance. So you have to rebalance the fly in relation to the weight you have sticking up that really has a natural tendency to go down. And so everything is a balancing act. And we've taken ours... Uh, in our past lives in corporate America, I spent some time in the manufacture of telephone equipment. In other words, 
on the manufacturing line and uh, time and motion studies and all that kind of junk. Well, we've done time and motion studies on our own fly tying to the point of speeding up the process, but also in looking at does the fly land well on the water with this configuration? What causes it not to? And down to the point of going into the weeds more than, or down the rabbit hole or whatever you want to call it, more than anybody would uh, would think. And there's a whole lot goes into a well-balanced fly and a well-tied fly as compared to one that looks the same and doesn't land on the water right. And it's to the materials that are used. Um, do you have balanced feathers in the wing? The I proportion mean, of the wings to the tail. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's very big. What is the uh, ideal they, proportion of tail to wing? Uh, well, it, that, that depends on materials because <laughs> different materials weigh different amounts. A hackle fiber tail is lighter weight than a hair tail. So a hackle fiber tail has to be a little bit longer, number one, to balance the fly. And because there's less weight in the hackle fiber. So we like a hackle fiber tail that is at least as long as the complete hook where a hair tail is the shank length. And that's substantially less. And we also don't tend to dress our tails quite as fat as many people do. Too many flies are overdressed. And when they're, we're trying to imitate insects. Let's take mayflies for an example. With the exception of some of the drake family, um, green drakes is an example. Mayflies are pretty skinny body things. They don't, they don't have a, a fat body. It, it doesn't take a big clump of dubbing to make a properly proportioned mayfly body, unless you're tying a green drake. And and so overdressing is one of the uh, one of the biggest problems. What do you think is the <clears throat> silliest fly material out there these days, or the most hyped up material that you don't necessarily agree with? Overrated, if you will. Oh wow! Do you have any ideas on that? Well, you know some of that stuff that that furry stuff that they were using for. That we used in 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 like those uh, classes that we taught in Key Largo. Hmm. What was that? St- fun fur or yeah, something? Furry, just... furry foam and and uh, and yeah. craft fur and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, those are, those are fine. It's uh, so we don't use it really. Don't we don't do a lot of that? Doesn't mean that we haven't done a lot of it in, in years past. It, whatever the customer wants to get. But it's not something that we really right. like working with necessarily. Yeah. I, I prefer I prefer natural things. Yeah. Then, there, then there's like this lady called April Volke came along and asked us to do dubbing brushes out of the dams. I darn stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I've still got... one of my favorite series. I just couldn't believe what what you put together. My brain was on fire after that. Oh, well, oh good. I'm, I'm glad because oh. we we racked our brains as to we wanted to give you something good. What was that? Uh, the 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 dubbing brush one that we did the four the four part the, series um, series of, of of videos that we did on dubbing the, brush oh okay okay yeah. okay <laughs> one of the things about being as old as we are sometimes we forget stuff so you'll have but to help us remember you two are some of too. the busiest people I've ever seen I honestly don't know any fly tires who do as much as you do especially honestly at ADL Paul from from uh, Australia. Fort Macquarie, yeah. Yeah. Says that they have trouble getting materials sometimes. And so he uses 
makeup brushes for tailing material. So we did a whole, I did a whole we did a series on that. Series <clears throat> on that. And I, I did research and went and looked for for what and it's a cool material. It works pretty good. Yeah. And there's no shortage of those either, especially if you went to, I don't know if they can sell them at thrift shops, but I bet you'd be easy to get your hands on a bunch I of probably secondhand. shouldn't say it. So I'll just say it's the thrift shop. He calls it the Chinese junk store. I don't know what that is. We, I call, I call it it's probably the dollar shop. store here. Huh? I, I call it the treasure shop. We buy everything. I'm a major thrifter. So everything in my house or on my body has been bought from a treasure shop. Otherwise known as a thrift shop. Well, is that right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I have got more Kate Spade, Gucci, Christian Louboutins. I mean, everything that you could imagine I've gotten from... The thrift shop. I go three days a week. <laughs> and, oh my uh, God, April! I, I had it, no idea. Very seriously. Oh yeah, no, I take it very seriously. I've got a whole circuit. Uh, well, I do some things at a thrift shop. I had, I haven't had real luck with clothes, but I do. You know, like if I want something for the greenhouse, you know, a pot or a something like that. The thrift stores where I go first. Oh, and when you go, when you go and multiple times a week, you really, you know, what's there. So you can be very fast. I know what was there what last week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So I can go, I can go for maybe I probably spend 10 minutes in each shop and I've got four shops. So within the hour I can get them all done. And I buy a lot of furniture too. And I do a lot of woodwork. And so I do a lot of flipping of furniture and yeah, it's, um, I, I love the, the, the thrift shop oh, but... know, you said you do <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. now i'm going to i'm going to interview you for a minute <laughs> okay but you said woodworking yeah yeah but just basic stuff you know i like to I'll, I'll either strip it or sand it down and then just with chalk paint nowadays you can do just about anything because oh, I did, oh for sure i did a thing that he had made with chalk paint that's not an easy process well, the thing is that the rustic look sells really well right now. So you just do oh, yeah. a little bit of fine sanding. But my dad's a woodworker. I mean, my dad's a luthier. He builds guitars. That's why when you were talking about your guitar, oh. I was I was shaking my head going, yeah, I've heard all these stories um, yeah. from, oh, from my God, dad. Yes. We also have a Habitat for Humanity. They have a, a, a store here where people take stuff. It's kind of a recycle place. And so you could go to their restore. It's Habitat Restore. And we buy stuff there. We did a a sunroom on our house. And all of the windows we got at Habitat for Humanity. And they're double-pane windows. and The $700 windows we got for like 30 bucks a piece. I know. And the the things that they throw away on the side of the road. I'm one of those people with the big truck and trailer who goes around and just loads everything (laughs) up. Because you should see you should oh. see the set of chairs these amazing chairs that i got i'm i'm slowly building up my collection for a cabin that i want to build out here and the things that i get on the side of the road i tell you it i mean for free it's absolutely amazing are, are you going to have a cabin in what the snowy mountains or something like that or what yeah so we're looking down there i i'm still stuck on where to buy um and pl- prices are still pretty inflated so i'm just I've got all my notifications on, just paying attention, looking for some property to put a little cabin in. Just like in just like in Canada. You know, obviously I still have my place in Canada and still my life in Canada, but I want that times two. So that here, so I can make it a little more seamless. Is there someone taking care of your place in Canada while you're in Australia? Yeah, yeah. I've got the best neighbors in in the world. Good. They're amazing. You actually both remind me a little bit about them, which is one of the reasons why I think I'm so interested in your story and gravitating i mean even the way that you met it's very it's very similar they um 
Yeah, you remind me of Paul and Patty. Friends make really good spouses. Yes. And we were really good friends. We were good friends for 10 years before things took a turn to another direction. We're still really good friends. I mean. Actually, the person that I want to be with, uh, you know, not very many husbands and wives can sit at the vice for 12 hours a day and still be talking to each other. I know people who can't sit at the table for 12 minutes a day and still be talking to each other. We don't like to travel alone. I, you know, I do some, I go to, I've been, I go to Missouri and I went to Key Largo and some places like that to teach and he stayed home and we don't like that. Yeah. No, I can not, see the, res- get, the respect. There's a very of, obvious respect between the two of you. Oh yeah. yeah. She's a pretty awesome lady. I, yeah. <laughs> Well, I know it's getting late there, but I just have a history question for you before I find out what's next for both of you. Um, Historically, I, uh, and I'm not entirely sure if I'm right here, but I had always thought that the feathers, especially in the Atlantic salmon world and not so much steelhead, that came later, but they were primarily a feather wing fly before moving into hair wings. And I'm wondering if that's in the, the same in the trout world. Was it were they once more feather wings before moving into hair wings? And if so, why? Absolutely. It's um I... my dad never tied with hair. Nope. That's a good example. Never tied with hair. It was all quill wing flies. That's the way it was in, in the olden days. And I think you can probably thank Dan Bailey and a couple of others from the 40s and 50s who went to Montana early on and looked around and said, darn, there's not very many duck quills around here, but boy, there's a lot of deer and elk. Oh, yeah, okay. And I think that's how it, I think that's how it came about, quite frankly. But and, and I won't say that Dan Bailey did it all. Dan Bailey, John Bailey, uh, Jack Dennis, you know, there's a whole long well, list of folks. Wolf. But, yeah, oh, yeah, Wolf, yeah, Lee Wolf. Lee Wolf. Yeah, because yeah, Lee Wolf and Dan Bailey were very were very good friends, and the Wolf why uh, was um, you know it's pretty obvious that Lee Wolf was the one that brought that all to, all about. And Dad never dubbed a fly either. He never used yeah, dubbing. Never used he, dubbing. He used yeah. all he had silk. these big spools of silk, yeah, thread that he yeah, all of his bodies were made with that or chenille. And right. Would you know oh, why? Was. was there a technical reason why? Or was it a snooty thing? Was it an availability thing? It's uh, just what, what I think. I was. think it was a traditional thing coming from yeah. England. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and um, yeah, it's that's. And they were know. tied on snail hooks. So he sold them um, to some of the local people. He sold to some of the resorts bouquets. A flies, and there'd be thirteen in a bouquet. Yeah, that'd be an angler's angler's dozen. <clears throat> so, yeah. what are your personal thoughts on it? Do you find that one fish is better than the other? Do you have a preference? I tell you what, it don't make a doggone bit of difference what's on the hook. It's how you present it. Okay. You, know, you know that's that's based on sixty five years on the water. So I have a pretty good idea, and yeah. Well, there's ex- some exceptions. On the Loxa, I got to have a stimulator. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just some places that you've had luck. So that's the feather, the fly that you use. Probably other things work, but, you know. 
I mean, we started to write a book and figured out that there probably wouldn't be any use for it. But one fly that we've fished all over the world in every environment you can imagine that's always produced for us is a renegade. I, I mean, I'm know. talking about saltwater. I don't know you what that is. You can tie them in the saltwater version, steelhead version. I'm Googling it right now. Oh, you don't know what a renegade is? No. Oh, <laughs> my, oh my God. Renegade fly. And that's an oh yeah yeah oh well that looks like a very classic. It's a four and a half fly, white and hack, white hackle in the front, brown in the back, and a and a and a tag of of silver or gold tinsel with a peacock body. That's oh, the original. That would work for did, just about anything. It, it I got to tell you, it does. And did you say salt water? Uh, you didn't say salt water. Yes, I did. For what? Think about it. Hey, that is a great bonefish fly in a size six with a dumbbell eyes and some wet and wet hackle. And on the, uh, you know, you know about the Henry's fork of the snake. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you know about the South fork of the snake? Uh, yes. I mean, I've heard of all of these. You heard oh, of them? Well, I'll tell you I, what. I it's, fished the South fork, I believe. Once okay. Well, time. anyway, they, the South Fork of the Snake is uh, is really great fishing. And now one of the things about having an 80-year-old person that you're interviewing is your mind goes, Zick! and I yeah, just lost it. I thought what I forgot I was going to say, so we'll get on with it. April, and maybe it'll come back tonight at 3 o'clock when I'm staring at the ceiling. Something about a renegade on the South Fork? Yeah, renegade. Oh, yeah. On the South Fork, they have uh, the Super Renegade. It's the only place that they do them, and it's a... It's on a um, size four, four X long hook, and half of the body is white chenille in front, and there's a grizzly hackle in the middle, and peacock at the back. So it's brown peacock, grizzly, white chenille, white hackle. The super renegade is a killer on the South Fork. I could see, I could see that working great there. So what's <clears throat> next for you two? Because it feels like. You're not slowing down. You're just getting busier. I'm seeing you constantly pump out content. Your camera work on your videos is totally dialed in. It doesn't, I mean, you're writing more books. It doesn't sound like you're slowing down at all. What's What's next for you? The uh, next thing is we're, we, we're working on a book for Upside Down Flies. That's uh, kind of, it was a real popular thing about 20 years ago. You mean fishing them upside down? Like you want them to be upside down? Yeah, let me hold. Let me do one here for you. Okay. Oh. oh. That's an example of an upside down fly with a reverse parachute hackle. So, what's the advantage in it being presented with its hook up like that? When there is no advantage unless you're fishing. You remember when I said. And it didn't make any difference when the water was moving fast, but when you're in a spring creek, they got time to look at it. Yeah. Believe me, after they've been stung a few times, that hook pointing down into the water makes a difference. I've always wondered that, you know. And here is... Also, sometimes in, if you've got a lot of weeds on the bottom and you're fishing. And that's a parachute uh, the other way. And... Uh, Let's see if I got. So you're writing a whole book on this. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a there's a lot there's a lot goes into it besides again just the balancing of the thing. 
Now think about it. You know that you're trying to make a hook stay hook point up in its natural tendency because of leverage and the additional weight and the bend of the hook and everything. It wants to go the other way. So you have to counteract that somehow. And so there's two there's there's two things on a dry fly. You've got the parachute effect, which is the wing that you saw sticking up above. That's the that. Uh, grabs it and works like a parachute and allows it to settle down onto the water. But once it hits the water, if you don't want it to fall over, you have to have stabilizers. And the stabilizers will be, and then you saw a couple of examples there of a parachute hackle. Well, actually, that's not the best stabilizer. There's even better ones, but that'll all come out in the book. I mean, it's... And when can we plan on seeing this book? Oh, hey. Oh, it's, a year um, <laughs> We're going to drag it out a little bit. Some of them we turned into a marathon. And at this stage of the game, we're slowing down a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. <clears throat> Good. We've decided that long trips probably aren't, you know, like three weeks. We don't really want to be away from home that much. So, you know, a week is a good, good, good trip now. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. And we just finished building a greenhouse. We tore down our old one and built this greenhouse. We're not building anything again. It's just oh the, the instructions with the greenhouse says two oh. people for it for a day. Well, two weeks into it, and <laughs> when you think a couple of 80-year-olds, it I'll tell you, it uh, you you slow down a bit. Well, and just rightfully so, you earned it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not 80 yet. Let's make that perfectly yes. clear. I married a younger woman. That's right. <laughs> you go, girl. <laughs> well, I do know it's getting late there because you're over on um, which time zone are you on? You're not on. We're, on. we're on Mountain. It's coming up on 630. Well, I'm going to let you both go. Um, where Again, where can people find you? What do you think is the best place? Or uh, where do you think is the best place? YouTube or your website? Um, you can go to Facebook. And it's Gretchen-Albedi for Facebook. Uh, the website is btsflyfishing.com. And that's boytomsamflyfishing.com. And uh, how do they get on go the, to YouTube. What about the newsletter, Al? How do we get on your newsletter? Because you've got a wonderful, um, you do an interactive meet. Is that every week or every month? Every week we do we do that. And uh, if they'll go, if you go to our website, at the very top of the page, it tells you uh, where to send the email, and it's a free hour and a half long fly tying gig on stuff. We're doing upside down flies. Um, what is the date? Wednesday, Friday. Friday night. Friday night. We're doing upside down flies. Oh, I'll see if I can get this out by then. Um, if you want, I'll send you the. I'll put you on the list if you want to be on it. Oh, I'm on the list. Oh, you are. I, I love I can, watching I can't what you're up to. There's 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 several hundred people on it. So anyway. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, join also, us if you can. If you can't get on it, you can then wait for um, Saturday afternoon. Usually by afternoon on Saturday, following Friday, he has it on YouTube. Yeah. So you go to Al BD channel, and all of our FTF is what is called a Fly Tying Friday, and and then Fly Tying Friday dash whatever the date. And Perfect. as far as your, your question was, the best way to get a hold of us, if you want to watch tying, probably YouTube. But if you want to purchase something or look at the books and all that stuff, then the website. Excellent. Or you can go to Amazon and, and look at what's there, too, as far as books. And what books do we have available? 
Oh, there I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you if you're listening right now, you can't see that Al Al is so great with this whole Zoom thing, and he's just uh, he's just. <laughs> and there's, slide there's with my little... I want you to take note in the lower right corner is two books on how to make candy because Gretchen, whether you know it or not, is an is a professional level candy maker. Really? Yeah. I have a background in She's my... awful good. Let me let me let me give you one tip or one recipe out of her peanut brittle cookbook that's uh, okay. that we just slashed up there. If you want the best tasting peanut brittle in the world, you'll take just just a little bit of jalapeno pepper and put it into the syrup as you're doing it. Now very little, not enough to feel it, but it accentuates accentuates the flavor. That is genius. I wonder what else I could do that with. Is it just peanuts uh, that it accentuates? There's a bunch of, there's a bunch Fudge, of things. English toffee. Yeah. Caramel corn. Caramel corn. Oh, I have a great recipe for caramel corn. It's bacon jalapeno. No, no. This is uh, not jalapeno. It's uh, <clears throat> adobo. You've, what? You've got me a bacon and jalapeno. Whatever whatever you're putting that on, <laughs> I'm in. It'll, it'll be, caramel corn. In, in, yeah. any car- caramel corn. If you want to, you can throw a few peanuts in there, too. Oh my God! This sounds like a great book. You two are just next level. <laughs> wow! And we also have a family cookbook, but we don't publish that. That's that's just we just give that. That's all the old family recipes uh, that we did for the kids. And I'm doing the second edition because there's been some additional family members. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, both of you, thank you so much. You're just an absolute pleasure. And um, I look forward to continuing to watch whatever you put out and s- staying in touch. Hey, thank you so much, April. So for... When are you heading for Canada? Uh, so I'm back in Montana in a month and a half. Oh, Montana. Oh. I, I haven't decided. Canada. I am. I haven't decided if I'm going back through Canada or not yet. Um, I mean, definitely the fall. I'll be there in, in the fall. So we're, we're in Montana. Um, I'm going to go to Kelly's, to Kelly Gallup's on the slide in. Where's oh, you're over the slide in? Yeah. And, oh, okay, over, the and then over to Roosters. Um, oh, stop, yeah. I, I used to guide the Madison. I know it well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh, I haven't fished in Montana before, embarrassingly enough. <laughs> Oh, oh, you are oh, in oh, for oh. a treat. Ooh. You've got to float the Yellowstone. You just have to float the Yellowstone. It is. Uh, even if you don't fish, you have to float the Yellowstone. It's magnificent. Oh, brown, trout fishing is, uh, brown trout fishing on the Madison in the slide-in area around Kelly's area. Good. A uh, pound of banks with a few with a few streamers. Oh, I should we tell Plan about Xanadu? No, no. We got a special place. <laughs> that we call Katmandu. Oh, Katmandu, that's it. And that's not the real name. Um, just tell Gal- Kelly that it's um, where Bob Jacklin caught his big nine-pound brown trout. Okay, I'll so pass this on. where that is, and then he can point it at you, and then we don't give away to the whole world. But <laughs> if beans are going to be there, just tell Kelly you'd like to check out the, the pool where Bob caught his big brown trout. Okay, I will. Yeah, keep your coordinates safe and I will I will ask Kelly to point it out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much to both of you for coming on. Take care. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. You bet. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 